was a live recording, but it, it was at Dizzy's, Dizzy's Club at Lincoln Center in 2009. And I was so happy to have a wonderful group. Unfortunately, the great Benny Powell passed away. That's Benny Powell's last recording. T.K. Bloomer's saxophone, Neil Clark and, and Alex Blake. And our guest was Lois Nash, you see. So it was a very spiritual evening. We didn't play for a recording. The performance ended up being a recording, which I'm very happy about. That was 2001 NEA Jazzmaster and 2011 Guggenheim Fellow, pianist and composer Randy Weston, talking about his latest CD, The Storyteller. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Randy Weston is a path-breaking musician. For six decades, African music has been central to his work. He's collaborated with African musicians, brought American artists to Africa, performed across the African continent, studied its history and various musical traditions, and lived in Morocco for seven years, where he ran a nightclub. The result of this exploration is a singular music, explicitly steeped in African rhythms and married to African-American jazz. Along the way, Weston has collaborated with some of the great artists of the 20th century. Poet Langston Hughes, for example, contributed to Weston's brilliant five-part jazz suite, Uruhu Africa, which was written in 1960. Weston's musical collaborators read like a jazz who's who. They include Dizzy Gillespie, Lionel Hampton, Freddie Hubbard, Youssef Latif, and Melba Liston. Jazz masters all. In 2001, Randy Weston joined that illustrious group when he was named a jazz master himself. Now, at the age of 85, he's still going strong. In the past year, he published his autobiography, African Rhythms, and brought out a new CD, The Storyteller. Last week, he was named a 2011 Guggenheim Fellow. He still plays in clubs, and he keeps on touring. In fact, I caught up with him when he was in Washington, D.C. to play at the Kennedy Center. I began my conversation with Randy Weston exactly where he begins his autobiography, African Roots. Here's how he opens the introduction to his book. I come to be a storyteller. I'm not a jazz musician. I tell stories in music. I was intrigued by that. So when I spoke to Randy Weston, I asked him to tell me more. Yeah, you know, the, the music is connected to the community and to the people. And all the songs have meanings. All the lyrics have meanings, you know. And the history of our music going all the way back, maybe to Buddy Bolden and before, you know. They told stories when they played the music. And it was also a documentation of the people, each song, whether it was a blues or a jazz piece. It's very important. So I'd like to tell stories about my life in music. That's why I use the term storyteller. You've spent your whole career, and I don't think I'm stretching here, in creating a conversation between the music of Africa and the music of America. You recognize that the music of these two continents really are in dialogue. Absolutely, because the African people bought the music when they were taken here. But it wasn't recognized because, you know, they came in slavery. But they had that ancestral memory of music. And uh, African music is as old as Africa itself, you see. So how that happened is really a miracle. But wherever you find African people, where we've settled, whether it was Brazil or Venezuela, Jamaica, Cuba, Puerto Rico, 
United States, you find this African spirituality and African rhythms in the music. And the music is always a story of the people. What they love, what they don't love, their dances, their joys, their sadness. It's through music, because music is, is the first language for us as a people. Because when we were born here, we couldn't speak English or French or Spanish or Portuguese. We had to speak music, and that's the amazing part about the history of our music. You're from New York. You grew up in Brooklyn. That's correct. In Bed-Stuy, and you grew up in a house filled with music. Filled, in a neighborhood filled with music. Oh, it was just music everywhere. You could walk down the street. Uh, there'll be a restaurant with a jukebox in the restaurant, and you could hear Duke Ellington's main stem out loud in the street, you know. Jukebox times, there was no television, no disco. So everything was live. Uh, musicians were very, very important, you know. Uh, if you're a musician, you would not go anywhere out without, without your shoes being shined, your tie, your shirt. So music was extremely important for us as a people. Who did you listen to when you were coming up? Oh, everything from the Black Church on Sunday, everything from the from the Calypso, the blues, the jazz, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Andy Kirk, Billy Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald. I go on and on, on, but we heard all kinds of music because our parents were the ones who introduced us to the music. And they took us to the Apollo Theater to hear some of the great stars. So because of our, our parents, they were the ones who would bring could be an opera, could be uh, some folk music, could be some jazz music. So we had a wonderful training in music growing up, and it was very natural for us. You had piano lessons when you were a kid, and it was straight-up classical music. Yes, that's correct, yes. Do you remember your teacher well? Very well. <laughs> she gave up on me. <laughs> because I was not a very good student. I was very tall. And a little awkward at my age, you know, and I didn't want to practice scales, you know. I wanted to get down with the blues right away, you know. But she was a great lady, and she was my foundation. How did you come to jazz? We lived it. It was it was in the community. You see, in the African-American community, there was no separation between the musicians and the people, you see. So, you know, guys could be shining your shoes and, and whistling a Charlie Parker solo because it was music in our spirit, in the way we live, and the way we cook our food, the way we walk, the way we talk. It's music that came out of Africa. When did you start playing jazz on the piano? Well, gradually, around 17 years old, we had little small groups in Brooklyn. And we had giants like Max Roach like and Yubi Blake and, and Duke Jordan and people like that living in Brooklyn. So we had a lot of people to be inspired by. So we had small groups. And with those small groups, uh, we would play dances, weddings, uh, we'd play polkas, we'd do all kinds of music. But it started with local groups. It was after World War II, you were drafted, you went to Okinawa, mm -hmm. you were there for a year. Yes. You come back to New York, what was the music scene like then? Oh, that's when the music that they called bebop arrived. And when I heard the music of Dizzy and Charlie Parker, I didn't know what kind of music that was. It was really incredible, you know, something really new and exciting, you know. But I fell in love with the music, and uh, one of the keys for that was Mr. Coleman Hawkins, because I loved Coleman Hawkins when he did Body and Soul when I was a kid. I loved his rendition of Body and Soul so much. I bought three copies, got an advance from my father and my allowance, hid two, and played one. And we played out 
loud in the streets so people could hear body and soul. But because of Colvin Hawkins, he went from Fletcher Henderson all the way to Dizzy and Monk, you see. So he was helping me make that transition from the traditional music of the big bands, the small groups, and the new modern music after the Second World War. You took yourself up to the Berkshire Mountains. Why did you do that? What was it about the Berkshires? I spent about 10 summers up there. That was because what happened, the drugs and alcohol hit our community. It was right after the Second World War, and it was a very sad time for me. And I was in my dad's restaurant, and which was between a liquor store and a bar. And there'd be fights on a Saturday night. It, it was a terrible period. It was a depressing time, you know. And a friend of mine who was a basketball player, he told me I wanted to go out to New York, go up to the Berkshires, take any kind of job, just go up there, get fresh air, listen to the music, and they have great pianos, and that's what happened. And I went up there doing every kind of job you could think of between Great Barrington and Lennox Mass, came in contact with European classical music, the Boston Symphony Orchestra there seven weeks of the year, uh, Jacob's Pillow with dance, chamber music, opera. I met young musicians studying European classical music, you know. And so it was a wonderful place. And then after came the music in, where I met some of the real giants of our music. I met Professor Marshall Stearns, who wrote the book called The Story of Jazz. And he had a global view, a global concept of African culture, you see. So he brought people up there like Mahalia Jackson, like John Lee Hooker, Donnie McGee, Sonny Terry, Candido from Cuba, Babatunio Latunji from Nigeria, Jeffrey Holder from Trinidad. So I had the whole thing, you know, this whole wonderful way of looking at African civilization, how it expanded despite slavery in the Western Hemisphere. Randy, I thought we'd hear just a little of you playing your own tune, Berkshire Blues. When did you write that? Well, what year did I write? Well, why do you have to ask me that, Joe? I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Forget the year you wrote it. Let's talk about the mood you were trying to evoke with that yeah, song. Yeah, in the late 50s. What story were you telling with that song? The beauty of the Berkshires. Mm-hmm. You know, it was such a really beautiful it. country. Heard beautiful music. I met people who love music, you know. So it was a wonderful, wonderful atmosphere. And I wanted to capture that beauty, and that's what Berkshire Blues is all about. And it was at the Berkshires where you met NEA jazz master Orrin Keep News. Yes, I did. And Orrin Keep News produced your first record. 
Yes, uh, Bill Growler. Actually, Bill was the he was the guy I really met first, Bill Growler. But him and Nora, they were, they were partners. And they had a recording company called Riverside Records. And they were putting out piano rolls, s- sounds of sports cars, and some music of traditional Africa. Music from West Africa, movie, music from Ethiopia, music from Congo. So my contact with them was my first recording, but at the same time, I got exposed to African traditional music. When was the first time you went to Africa? My first time in 1961. I went to Nigeria. And what was that experience like for you? It was incredible because I went with 29 great artists, you know. Uh, Lionel Hampton had eight members of his orchestra. I took with me the great Booker Irvin on tenor saxophone and Scobie Solomon on drums. We had uh, people like Hale Woodruff, Langston Hughes, uh, Martha Flowers, soprano singer, Natalie Anderis, great concert pianist. We had Al Mims and Leon James from the Savoy Ballroom. And there were 29 of us, and we spent 10 days in Lagos to see what the relationship was between African-American culture, music, philosophy, painting, sculpture, desires, politics, and Nigeria. And it was wonderful for me because I've always dreamt of going to Africa, like most of us have, you know. That's my ancestral home. And when I went there, I was so moved. You ended up going back to Africa again and again and again, and finally ended up moving there. You lived there for seven years. Yes. What's interesting, Randy, is that you spent as much time listening to music as you did playing music. Oh, absolutely, because I did the State Department tour, and I did uh, 14 countries in Africa. And we toured West Africa and North Africa and Beirut, Lebanon. And wherever I went, I requested the traditional music of the people, if possible. And I heard some incredible music, which certainly influenced the way I play. You opened a club in Tangiers called the African Rhythms Club. Yes. But it wasn't just African music that you played there. You really had a lot of American music, too. Mm-hmm. We have a blues band from Chicago. We have singers from the Congo singing Lingali. We had the Moroccan, um, the Kanawa musicians. So the whole idea was that... Uh, what is the impact of Africa civilization on the world? What happened when African people left Africa? And what happened with music, you see? And we have such a diversity of music, whether it's Brazil or the Caribbean or the United States, but there's a common foundation, and that's the music of Africa. So in a way, our music is different, but in a way, our music is the same. And no better example of that was Festac in 1977, when there were 20,000 artists in Lagos for one month. And the very last concert was Mary McKeever, Stevie Wonder, and Osabisa. There was an audience of about 50,000 people. And at the end of the festival, everybody said, our music is different, but our music is the same. Ganawa music is very important to you. Can you explain a little bit about that music for us? How did you first hear it? Right. Well, you know, when I was in Morocco, I met a young man. He was Moroccan. He taught English in Tangier. And uh, he told me about the Ganawa people. These are people who uh, originally came from West Africa. And they were taking the slaves and soldiers up to North Africa in like 16th century, like that year. And they produced a powerful spiritual music. And uh, I met them, and I heard what we do in its traditional form. When I heard their music, I heard the blues. I heard black jazz. 
I heard the music of the Caribbean. I heard the foundation, which proved to me that the rhythms of Africa, you know, they remain alive but disguised in different forms, you know, whether it's in Honduras or Haiti or Jamaica or Trinidad or Brazil or Mississippi or whatever the music is. It's the spirit of Mother Africa and that music. And that music is a healing force. It's a music that makes you grow, makes you feel good, you see. And it's a world music, yeah. I thought we'd hear a little bit of Blue Moses. Yes, that was influenced by the traditional music of Ganawa people. of Blue Moses, particularly Ganawan? Well, the Ganawan rhythm is like, uh, they. you see, in, in traditional Africa, they get their rhythms by listening to Mother Nature. And all of the insects, the, the animals, the sound of Mother Nature is rhythm and sounds. So African musicians are influenced by the environment of Africa itself. And you take like the Ganawan rhythm is based upon the horse, and the way the horse moves. There's a certain rhythm there, you see. So the music is why it's so powerful, because it captures the nature of this very rich, diverse continent called Africa. Yeah. So all of traditional music is, it comes out of the, the nature of Africa itself. Randy, we sit here in 2011, and world music as an idea is something we really take for granted now. But in 1960, you were one of the first people who were not just pointing out the roots of Africa in our music, but actually explicitly using African music in your own work. Did you find people were open to this music? How did people respond to it? Well, you know, it's like, in a way, they have been cut off from from the origins of our music, you see. Uh, U.B. Blake, uh, Duke Ellington, all the African-American artists of the 19th, late 19th century and 20th century, they wrote music about Africa. And uh, uh, it, that's the way it was, but we got cut off from that, you see? You know, and then various changes, integration, things like that happened. But my source has been really going back and listening to 1928, Duke Ellington, uh, Black, Brown, and Beige, uh, Black and Tan Fantasy, uh, 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 Lucky Roberts, Lullaby on the Nile. So you see, the, the, the further you go back, 
our ancestors were close to Africa because our grandmothers, our grandfathers were African people. So that transition musically and spiritually took place then. So I went back and listened to the early blues. I listened to the early pianists like uh, Jimmy Lancey and how they approached the music. And they had a rhythmic concept, a polyrhythmic concept here of playing piano, of playing instruments, of using their hands, you know. And you see a musician, even when he, even when I play piano and I'm playing, one foot is playing one rhythm, my hands are playing other rhythms, my head is going to another rhythm. That's all Africa, you see. And it's been retained. But we don't realize that because we have such little information about the music of Africa. You were made an NEA Jazz Master in 2001. What was that experience like for you? Shocking. (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) Because I was a big fan, a serious fan of this music, you know. I never ever thought I would be a professional musician, much less getting a jazz master. So that's one of the miracles and one of the beauties and one of the mysteries of my life. How this guy who wouldn't take piano lessons <laughs> and grew up with people like Art Tatum and Earl Garner and Fats Waller, all these giants, and I would end up being a jazz master as a pianist and a composer. So it was a really a great moment in my life. Well, 2001 was certainly a red-letter year for you, Randy, because Lord knows you've done a lot, but one of the things you did that year, and it just appeals to the romantic historian in me, is you played at the reopening of the Great Library at Alexandria. What a thrill that must have been. It was. It was. Because ironically, myself and a bassist named James Lewis, we were the only ones there representing the Western Hemisphere. Not just the states, yeah. And it turned out because there was a, a, a wonderful band leader in Cairo. His name was Salaragab. He passed away a couple of years ago. And he had a great jazz band. In fact, Sun Ra recorded with him. And I met him, and we got to be very close. And he recommended that I should participate with other artists at the opening of the library in Alexandria. So you know it was quite exciting for me. I- Randy, you recently published your autobiography, African Rhythms, which you co-wrote with jazz journalist Willard Jenkins. And you kind of had to take a deep breath and look back on your 85 years of life. What was challenging about that for you? I guess the only thing I would say is, is my memory, because I had to think about my life and think about the places that music has taken me and the people I've met through music wonderful people all over the planet, you know. So I had to do a lot of uh, searching in my mind, bring up my memory. But I was lucky because I had a lot of documentation at home, which I could refer to. What happened in 1967, what happened in 1950, what happened when I was a little boy in the black church, you know, with the bow tie and the short pants, you know. So I had to go all the way back and also give even more thought of, of the commitment and the sacrifices of my mother and father in that generation to give me those piano lessons, uh, to give me Africa, to keep me spiritually healthy, to make sure I was with the right kids in the neighborhood, you know. So I had to do all of that. 
And uh, Wood did an excellent job because he made me, you know, rethink and, and go back and, and bring out these stories. And, and when I told these stories, it's like somebody else, not myself. <laughs> so much has happened. And again, it's because of, of that love of music, you see. And, and what's so incredible up until this minute, how you meet the best people on the planet Earth through music. And it always amazes me. Randy Weston, it was such a pleasure meeting you. Sure, thank you thank so you. much. I really appreciate and you And we coming. appreciate you very much. Well, thank you. That was NEA Jazz Master Randy Weston. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Berkshire Blues and Blue Moses from the album Zep Tep. Composed and performed by Randy Weston, use courtesy of Random Chance Records. Excerpt from High Fly, from the CD The Storyteller, written by Randy Weston and performed by Randy Weston and his African Rhythm Sextet, live at Dizzy's Club. Use courtesy of Motema Music. Our thanks to journalist Willard Jenkins. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, poet and NEA Literature Fellow, Kristen O'Keefe Abdowitz. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. Or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.